0: Colossians 1, starting in verse 20. Again, speaking of Christ and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So just kind of a a quick, uh, just a really super brief review of what we covered so far in verse 20. Again, the fullness of the Godhead resides permanently in Christ, and as a result, Uh, He is equal to the task of reconciliation, which again is we were at enmity with God and we've been reconciled to him. Uh, His blood, again, is that which satisfies the just demands of the broken law. Uh, Again, we want to make sure that we have a really good understanding of both God's justice and God's love uh, that is revealed in the cross. And so we need to keep in mind, because the world does often misunderstand when we talk about forgiveness or being forgiven by God, because the world often thinks that forgiveness means that in a sense you kind of shrug your shoulders and say it's okay, and that's not what it is. Remember that all sin is punished, all sin will be punished, period. No one gets away with anything. The forgiveness we receive, we receive forgiveness because the penalty was paid by someone else. So, in essence, we did not get away with anything. God's not looking the other way. He's not pretending we didn't sin. Um, It's none of that. You may have heard this. Hopefully you haven't. Um, It used to be kind of common where when when it came to remembering the definition of the word justified, Uh, individuals will say, well, the way that you remember what justified means is it means just as if I never sinned. But the reason why that's so horrible is it does kind of eliminate the whole idea of what it cost for us to be declared uh, not guilty before the Lord. And that was the death of his son. So, to be justified, we are treated as if We have not sinned. We are treated as if we have the righteousness of Christ because we do. But again, it's not our righteousness. So keep in mind that with God, individuals going to heaven, God is not letting in individuals that he dislikes more than others. There's no favoritism. It's it's none of those types of things. Every single person who goes to heaven is a person who is a sinner, who has sinned greatly against God. And those individuals have had their sins paid for by Christ um, the individuals who do not believe in Christ will pay for their sins uh, and so when whenever we want to explain things to people we, we we want to be able to let them know that because God is just he must punish sin and so he will he shows no favoritism um, it's just the whole idea of the substitute or substitutionary of death of Christ that's what people sometimes miss or maybe don't even understand uh, and that's important. It does mean, in a sense, that we are getting off. We're, we're, we're being God's being merciful to us. Uh, I am not going to be punished for the wrong I've done. I deserve to be punished for the wrong I've done. I'm not going to be. You know, that is obviously this incredible benefit that God has given to us. But again, it comes at a great cost to God. And that was the death of Jesus. Yes? We are required to repent and turn the other way. Isn't there, I mean... I know that we're forgiven but we aren't we required to repent we repent i, I the, the bible tells us to repent i sometimes hesitate with the word required because we don't want people to think that they have to that that's some kind of yes, work they perform that yeah it's a natural stance of the heart kind of like um if you are scolding your children for something wrong they've done and they and they're responding to what you've said to them, what you've done to them, and they're crying, oftentimes the tears is more, let's say you spanked them, the tears are more than just because you gave them a spanking. They really are, in a sense, brokenhearted because they've, they've gone against mom and dad, or they've hurt mom and dad, or disappointed mom and dad. And, and they, you know, they confess, they repent of what they've done. So that's that's not a, they're not doing that to earn our favor. It's a natural response to the situation. What's happened? God wants to. Yes. So that's what. So the fact the Bible even used there's a phrase used that uh, where it tells us not to be argumentative, because God may gra- so that God may grant others repentance. So even even our ability to repent is a gift from God. Right. You know, because it's a result of the changing of the heart and, and all those things. So yes, we do repent. Um, but again, all of that would be wrapped up in the word that we respond. There's never this idea that, well, you have to do this and you have to do that because that can make it sound like we're, we're doing, we're, we're covering certain steps to earn our way and we're not doing that. And we just have to be careful with that because that's the natural tendency to believe that. And when churches or offshoots of churches go astray with the gospel, that's normally where they go astray. It's that. That aspect of it makes sense. It does. Yeah. Okay. All right. So again, so God's justice and His just demands were met by Christ, and it's a, and it is a revelation of God's love for us because He did that. He willingly sent us to the die for us because He loved us. So God's love and God's justice are both displayed in the cross, and and that's what we we want to think about when we think about it. When we think when we take communion and we think about our salvation. And that's what we want to make sure we get across to others um, if, they, you know, if they don't understand forgiveness or they make some kind of remark. So when someone makes a remark like that, it's, it's a really a great opportunity to uh, talk to them about the gospel and let them understand that whatever they're thinking at that moment is not what God offers when it comes to forgiveness. They have completely the wrong idea. Now, that doesn't mean they will still accept what you say, uh, but the point is it gives us an opportunity to explain it. Um, which, is, uh, uh, which is a great thing to be able to do. The word reconcile, again, as we mentioned last week, the emphasis of the word that's used there in the Greek language, uh, it's what they, they say that it is intensified. And so the idea then is that it's not just a simple reconciliation, but we are reconciled fully. So the idea is that being reconciled to God, I was the enemy of God, and now I am what? A child of God. So it's not only that i'm like a non-combatant you know like when we lock those guys up in gitmo that's that's not what that is you know it, it, the idea is we go from the one extreme so to speak the enemy and now i'm adopted as his child so there's a full reconciliation uh that takes place and so that's what's em- emphasized there emphasized with that word so then let me read to you uh um i, I mentioned last week that sometimes individuals misunderstand uh... this verse and other other verses that speak of reconciliation um... because they'll say well it says here that through him to reconcile to himself all things and they're kind of extrapolate from that that somehow there's universalism in there and there are still people who believe that uh... universalism is simply the belief that in the end everyone gets saved in the end everyone goes to heaven many individuals who think that will say that that is the only logical outcome we can have because that's what a God of love would do. And they might even say, because I know that's what I would do, which is a bad thing to say. You know, remember, we don't compare God and we say that God should be more like me. All right? That's a pretty arrogant thing to say. But people do, they don't always think that it's arrogant. They're not thinking that way. But that is what you're doing. Uh, but But in their mind, you know, in their... In a limited way of thinking they're thinking well of course i would forgive everyone i would let everybody in heaven uh until you begin to bring up some specific situations even though most people do bring up stalin and hitler and all those types of things um i think it's better uh maybe better to bring it down to something that's more horrific in a sense something we can really identify with and so that would be the unrepentant pedophile Uh, right now i don't you know even in prison those guys are on the lowest rung Um, you know if you sell drugs um, the guys that are guilty of that will say, "Well, yeah, I did sell drugs, but I didn't sell them to children." And then the guy who sold sold drugs to children will say, "Well, yeah, but I didn't molest children." And the guy who's molested children has got nowhere to go. That's why they usually go to a special prison uh, for their safety, because yeah. people will beat them up, uh, kind of a thing. So you want to, so you bring up some kind of scenario. Or maybe even some real story that you know about and just basically change the the um not the actors but the outcome so to speak and say well what would you think if a judge was to let a a pedophile who is guilty and been proven guilty and has never gotten in trouble before and he's molested whether it's 10 kids five kids 20 kids whatever and he just simply lets him go is that is that good or is that wicked i've never met the person yet who says that that's good every single person says well that would be wicked because everybody believes that person needs to pay for what they did because we always think of children as being innocent so we want to take advantage of that we want them to imagine that's what you're saying if you believe everybody goes to heaven that's what you're saying people do not pay because we know for a fact not everyone suffers for their sins in this life there are tons of people who've gotten away with all kinds of things throughout the world it's I mean, it's maddening uh, when you think about it. And without there being life after death and a final judgment, uh, I'm not sure how we would actually be able to handle uh, the truth of that. Um, And so it's, it's good to know that no one gets away with anything. So again, even in our forgiveness, remember, we haven't gotten away with anything. Whatever sins we've committed, we've not gotten away with it. Our sins were truly punished. Um, but again, it's back to Christ being our substitute. But now, on to this idea of universalism. So MacArthur says this about verse 20. He says, Some have imagined all things to include fallen men and fallen angels, and on that basis have argued for universalism, the ultimate salvation of everyone. But by so doing, they overlook a fundamental rule of interpretation, which is the Analogia, analogia, scriptura. So what that means is, I think that's in your notes, the principle teaches that no passage of scripture properly interpreted will contradict any other passage. Now that's a very important principle. You don't have to know the Latin to know all that. Uh, we, are, we should already understand that God never contradicts himself. So one of the things that we can remember when we're talking about scripture, let's say you talk about any theological issue, with an individual and um, some people wrongly think that when it comes to issues if they have more Bible verses than you do then they win it's it's not baseball so what I normally do if, if an individual wants to discuss something we disagree on is I will normally never use the passages that I would use to defend my position I only want to use theirs and all I want to do is take what, their verse, what, what they say their verses are saying and say let's look at that verse more closely and look at it in context and almost always by just asking some questions you can help them see that that verse does not say or mean what they think it does. And so we can eliminate that from their argument and then we'll go to the next one. Um, because that's normally what's taking place because God never contradicts himself. So, there are many places where the Bible talks about people in hell. I mean, there's that story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man's in hell. And what does Abraham say? You can't come over here. Lazarus can't come to you, but you can't come over here. Uh, you read the book of Revelation, there's a whole mess of people being thrown into the lake of fire. That's forever. Um, so, the Bible does not contradict itself. And so, because of that, um, when, we, when we look at verses... And we're trying to figure out what scripture says and what it means um, you may not know the entire position of what somebody's holding to and why but what i do know is this verse that we're looking at doesn't mean that because over here there's this verse and if we and if we understand this verse correctly what i do know is whatever this verse means it cannot contradict this so that's what's important so even if you can't, sometimes you know there are some verses that are hard to understand. So you may be discussing with an individual one of those verses that's very difficult to get to the bottom of. And you can't quite come to, well, what is it really saying? Is it really supporting what they're saying? But if I have a verse over here, and I, and I know with confidence what it actually means, and let's say you have that correct, then whatever this verse means, there's one thing I know for a fact. It cannot contradict this. And so, and, that, and so we want to proceed from there. Uh, and even that person, the, the, the responsibility would be on them to show us that this verse over here that contradicts that is in error. How, how have I misunderstood this? And then, we, and then if, they, if they can't, now we have this difficulty. All right? There appears to be a contradiction. Since God does not contradict himself, then we, we may need to do more study to figure out what's going on. Because there are some hard issues in Scripture. Uh, and there are, even beyond that, uh, some issues where there are some very brilliant, godly Christians who still disagree on the meaning uh, or uh, of certain things or on the doctrines of things. That's normal because we're all finite human beings. The good news is, with all of that, the fact that we can disagree, and there may be many issues we disagree on, there's what we call the fundamentals of the faith, or the essence of Christianity. There's none of that. You know, I have some really good friends who are Presbyterian ministers. So we clearly disagree when it comes to prophecy. They're clearly on the side that's wrong, and I'm clearly on the side that's right. All right, But, be that as it may, the bottom line is that when it comes to the gospel, we are in full agreement. There is no disconnect. It is the same, it is the same thing. And that's, that's the essence. Now, I do believe the older we get, the broader... <laughs> the essentials become <laughs> you know it's more and more things that we add to it that you just say there's just no way you can believe something else but uh, that is very important so we want to make sure we remember that because sometimes people sometimes people will think that um, if somebody can show them from a passage what appears to contradict what they've already be- what they've always believed they just assume that person's oh well I I didn't know that before I guess you're right and like. Even if they are right, a you should never give in like that. Not because of being right or wrong. We want to know the truth, and if they just state something from a passage, at least you should begin to question yourself and question that. Say, wait a minute. Now I've not heard that before. That doesn't seem to gel with what I know about God. And then we got to dig into the Word of God. And again, it may take a while. Doesn't mean you're going to resolve it in five minutes. It may take some study, may, and sometimes it may take study over several different weeks. But we, most of the time, we can get to the bottom of things. And I think we're the better along the way because we're learning more about God, learning more about the Word, and those kinds of things. So we want to make sure that we don't allow disagreements or things to uh, undermine our faith or to disturb us. Um, it really is okay. At the same time, we shouldn't be afraid to say things in a dogmatic way. In other words, there are, there, there, it is, there are certain things in the scripture that we can be dogmatic about. For example, Jesus is God. That's a dogmatic statement. There is nothing else that can be said that's less than that that's true. All right? If that's offensive to somebody, there's nothing I can do about that. Now... I don't want to be offensive in the way I say things, but if the, if the truth, the real truth, offends them, then so be it. But we but we don't try to we don't try to soft sell it. Uh, now, if that individual was raised in a particular way, you may want to take great patience to explain it. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. And they may not come around to it immediately, but they need to consider it uh, seriously. Consider it when it comes to that. Yes, sir dogmatic is a declarative statement that is there's no there's no wiggle room it is boom this is it and so you're making that strong declaration uh and you'll hear people use that term from time to time about being dogmatic or not being dogmatic you know that kind of thing um anyway okay so again so this uh uh analogia uh scriptura it is a principle that teaches that no passage of scripture Properly interpreted, that would be a key, will contradict any other passage. When we let scripture interpret scripture, it is clear that by all things, Paul means all things for whom reconciliation is possible. That's important because there's nothing in the Bible that even hints that fallen angels can be reconciled, okay? Remember, fallen angels were skipped or bypassed in God's plan of salvation. God only planned to save those who were created in his image, uh, angels were not created in God's image they are magnificent beings in many ways but again they were not created in God's image only we are so all the angels that sinned with Lucifer in the beginning there is no salvation for them and there would never be any salvation for them and there was no salvation offered for them uh, or even or that's going to be granted to them or in any way uh, purchased for them only for us Um and so that's, so again, all things, uh, all things for whom reconciliation is possible. Again, that fallen angels and unregenerate, unregenerate men will spend eternity in hell is the emphatic teaching of Scripture. Our Lord will one day say to unbelievers, this comes from Matthew chapter 25, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment. If you don't know this, uh, because some people will say that uh, there's not a lot in the Bible about hell, we can begin with this. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else. And he always spoke about hell as a reality. Um, And, of course, he's speaking to a group of religious people who believe that. Of course, many of the Jews believed that that because of their birth, they were going to skip hell. Uh, And so he did go out of his way to make sure that was not the case. MacArthur continues, on the other hand, there is a sense in which even fallen angels and unredeemed men will be reconciled to God for judgment, but only in the sense of submitting to him for final sentencing. So there are those who sometimes want to go, uh, I guess you want to get real technical, and the idea is is that, but the word reconcile, I think, would still be wrong. Uh, They're never reconciled to God. They are brought to submission. They are brought to a point that they recognize Uh, who God is Uh, the Bible does say one day every knee will bow they will but that's not bowing in repentance but that would be that's bowing in recognition of who God is period Um, and so there's no there's no reconciliation or salvation there so their relationship to God that's the unbeliever the fallen angel will change from that of enemies to that of the judged so it Again, you can say it that way, I don't think much has changed because even though they are judged, they are still the enemies of God. But again, they will be sentenced to hell. They will be, they are unable to, uh, any longer to pollute God's creation. They will be stripped of their power. They will be forced to bow in submission to God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 reads uh, that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, which are fallen angels. He made a public display of them, having triumph over them. Because of God's victory, Romans 16 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then in Philippians 2, it says, at the name of Jesus, as I already quoted before, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. God again has elevated Christ to a position above all things, whether whether things on earth or things in heaven. Again, Paul wrote to the Ephesians that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And that's, again, in Ephesians chapter 1. So you can see that there's this consistency throughout the scripture about who Christ is, his position, his preeminence, uh, his authority, his divinity. um, Everything he's done, everything continues to point to that and to the greatness of Christ. That's why, as we've said before, when it comes to trying to figure out when you hear about a new, let's say, a Christian denomination or a Christian group, usually it's like a Christian group. We say, well, I, well, is this group Christian? Ask yourself one question and try to get the answer from them, and that is, what do they teach or believe about Jesus Christ? That's always the linchpin. Every single cult and every single pagan religion has it wrong, all of them. And normally, what they have wrong is they do not believe that he is God. Yes? Um, Pastor, was Lucifer created before creation? Well, he was created before the world, I believe, yes. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how much long before the world. I don't know if it was a year, 20 years, or five minutes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it was, it was before that. Because when Adam and Eve are in the garden, <clears throat> Satan has already fallen. He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's no longer Lucifer uh isaiah 14 is the story of where he is where he sins and he's judged and we know that it was about a third of the angels because of what it says in revelation all right okay Uh, so again uh though in the sacrifice of christ which we talk a great deal about the cross god made provision for the world all persons will not be reconciled to god in the saving sense of being redeemed Um, the benefits of Christ's atonement are applied to the elect who alone come to saving faith in him from God's general plan to reconcile all things to himself Paul turns to the specific reconciliation of believers like the Colossians so that's what we just got done reading through all of that so let me read to you again verses 15 through 20 after we've spent some time talking about those uh, those verses and the meaning again beginning in verse 15 he, speaking of Christ is the image of the invisible God. So again, the first thing you should remember is that he is an exact duplicate in every way of God. Um, he is the firstborn of all creation. The main thing, to remember from there, is that firstborn does not mean that he was created or that he was born. It is a title. Um, it, is, it is a position uh, of, of what he is. He is above all. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So that becomes a little self-explanatory. Again, the idea, Christ is the one who's responsible for creation uh, and everything was created for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So the power of God, the power of Christ is such that by his mere existence, Everything is held together. So think of it in this way. So I've often wished that I had this kind of power. I get really upset with all the stuff I see going on in our government, and a lot of us do. We don't like what's going on. I don't like what goes on in elections. So it would be really cool if I could just sit in my living room on election day, and because I think every single conservative candidate should win by 20 points, if I could just think that, and it happened, that's the kind of power God has. He didn't even have to think about it. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's insane if you think about that kind of power. That's what he has, because he. So it's not like God is trying to to juggle all these things in his head. Okay, I've got I've got to make sure I keep all the planets spinning because of gravity, and I got to make sure he's not doing that. He just exists. And all these things, because that's that's the kind of power that he has. Uh, And that's what that is emphasizing there. Then in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So not only is the head of of all of creation, he's the head of the church. Um, The firstborn from the dead, we know he wasn't the first one to rise from the dead, but he was the first one to rise from the dead and never die again. Uh, and again all this was done so he might be what preeminent above all things verse 19 for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell so there is nothing lacking as far as christ being divine there's nothing that that is missing in christ that the father possesses they both everything they are in essence they are in essence together they both they, they possess all those all those qualities verse 20 and through him uh, so again, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul's not done yet, but that is this incredible statement that's just it's just packed full of meaning, uh, where again, it's just clearly, Christ is exalted, he is majestic, he should be worshipped, he should be honored um, it's about him, it's from him, it's through him, it's for him. It's all of those things. And that's why then when the church gathers, we sing about Christ and sing to Christ and we, and we uh, elevate Christ and we live up the name of Christ um, is because that's the way that God has designed it and that's the way that it should be. So then moving on in verse 21, And you, as he writes to the believers in Colossae, who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So think of it this way. When he begins verse 21, what he's doing is taking all that stuff he said about Christ and he's now tightening it up and showing them what it means to them individually. All of this is true. And all of this is true means this for you as an individual. And that's what he's giving us here. So he begins by addressing them specifically. He says, and you who, who were who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing, uh, doing evil deeds. So the word were uh, in the Greek language is in the present tense, which means that our state, that's before salvation, was one of continuous alienation from God. So part of the reason why that's important is there's this idea that's presented in Scripture that it, we, we don't have a mass of humanity where some individuals may have occasionally disobeyed God and others were really, really bad. There are those who've done great evil, but all of us are in the same boat of being individuals who are continuously, with every breath, in rebellion to God. That's what we need to recognize. That's what he's saying to these individuals. He's reminding them, this is where you once were. At one time, you were, you were alienated from God every moment of your life. Every breath you took, that was the state you were in. That's what he's reminding them of. So again, they were estranged from God, they were foreigners, Uh, they did not belong to God. That word means you don't belong to the same country or the same land or the same government. Uh, It means that you are adverse to each other. Again, in Romans, Paul reminds the believers there that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. What is interesting is in uh, Romans 5.10 where that comes from, where it says while we were enemies, uh, the idea... Uh, in that phrasing, while we were enemies, the idea of that phrase there is that while we were actively in the midst of rebelling against God. That's what it's emphasizing there. Um, so it was, it was in the midst of all of this mess that, that God sent Christ. It's not this idea that there was all this rebellion, then the dust settled, and God thought about it and said, Okay, I think I'm going to send Christ to save some. That's not what took place. Man wasn't thinking that way. Because man was always what? In rebellion. He was always in active rebellion. And so God, so God sent Christ in the midst of that uh, to do this. So it's basically, it's kind of like uh, you're, in, you're in a very heated argument with an individual. And in the midst of this individual cursing you and spitting at you as they're spraying all over you because of all the words they're using and they're trying to push you, you reach out and just grab them hug them and say you love them. See, it's easy to do when the dust settles, right? Like, you know, let's say the husband and wife are kind of arguing. I'm not saying you're throwing plates at each other, uh, but you kind of have an argument. And then normal, n- normally what happens is, is when the argument ends, whichever way, you know, the dust kind of settles. It may be a few minutes, uh, which is usually best, but let's say there's some time that goes by and you begin to feel bad for what maybe what you said. You feel bad for how, maybe how you handle the situation. And then you approach each other and usually one will say, I'm really sorry. I, I shouldn't have yelled. I should have lost my temper. You know, all that. And then hopefully the other one says, you're darn tootin'. No. The other one will say, the other, the other one will say normally what happens is I'm sorry too. Because, you know, I, my yelling at you was, you know, just it was wrong. So then you're reconciled, okay, at that point. Um, But normally what doesn't happen, which it can happen, and we sometimes do this with our kids, right? Let's say that your kids are still in a fit, they're mad at the world, and they're mad at you, and they're not calming down, and you just grab them and you hug them. You know, you don't grab them and throw them against the wall, but you grab them and you hug them. In fact, I remember one time, I'll never forget this story. Um, My youngest son, he was in middle school, and, he was telling me a story. I kinda, I, in the beginning of the story, I kind of got on him because of what was going on. These, All these boys he grew up with, they were very, very competitive. And so they were playing basketball at recess. <laughs> and Jan Michael was pretty good. And so he had friends who would pay him money to be on their team. I'm like, how important can this thing be? But anyway, you know, we're talking about change. But anyway, so he's going through all this. But anyway, there was a, a new boy in school. And... Uh, so they were all playing basketball, and this kid's playing with them. And um, this kid, he, I mean, he was playing dirty. He was tripping kids. He was shoving them. And at one point, um, my younger son was kind of a, a short, fat kid. He wasn't super fat. He, he was chubby, even though he was a pretty good athlete, but he had some weight. Anyway, so this kid got really, really angry at Dan Michael for something, and he started hitting him. And I'm listening to the story and I'm thinking the worst, oh no, you hit him and you've been suspended. Why didn't I get a phone call? I mean, that's what I'm thinking, right? And so after he tells me this kid's hitting him, I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, I just grabbed him and hugged him until he stopped. (laughs) And so I said, well, why did you do that? This is what he said, which blew my mind. He goes, he didn't have a dad. I'm like. I'm trying not to cry in front of him, you know. But that was just incredible understanding of this kid. He did not have a dad. So, and I said, so I guess he stopped. He goes, yeah, he finally stopped, and then we finished the game. All right, so that's kind of the idea with this being, you know, when Christ reconciles us to himself is that's what's going on, uh, which I think gives it a great deal of strength to God's determination, the strength of God's love, you know, that kind of thing. So it says here again, who were once alienated and hostile, or hostile in mind. So that's what that's emphasizing. Again, alienated is in the perfect tense and also what's called the passive voice. So that indicates that something happened to all men in the past to cause them to be estranged from God, and that condition has persisted. All right, so this is the universal guilt of all men. Something happened in the past. What was it? The sin of Adam. All men are born already enemies of god and that was their permanent state right till it's changed by something or someone which we know it's god that does that but that's the idea there so that state can uh, persisted in their life so all men are born little sinners if you want to use that phrase and again we persist in that condition because again the perfect tense speaks of permanence so again that's stressed uh, in the Bible, the permanence of our state as sinners. And the reason why that's stressed is because, as always, it's emphasizing the impossibility of us <coughs> doing anything about it. There's, there's nothing you can do. It's kind of like, um, supposedly, India has gotten rid of their caste system, but they still follow it. And because of the caste system, there's four levels. So depending on your birth, what kind of group you're in, you're in that group forever. There's nothing you can do to change it, at least in that country. Nothing you can do. Um, it doesn't matter how much good you do. Doesn't matter how much money you make. In fact, everything, if you're born of the lower of the lowest caste, everything's against you. Um, there are certain individuals of the other other caste caste, caste uh, levels that even if you're qualified for the job that they're offering, if you're of a lower caste, they won't hire you. That's not you know so. The idea of non-discriminatory laws doesn't exist there. You can't do that here. You know, imagine going in for a job interview and the individual says, what, what's your last name again? And you tell him, so isn't that Scottish? Yeah, we don't hire your kind here. Now, that used to go on in this country. You know, if you're black, Scottish, German, whatever, uh, yeah, we don't hire your kind. And that was just seen as normal. There's nothing you can do about it. So again, that's the state that we were in. That's what what the Bible is emphasizing here. So again, in other words, we were in a continual state of separation and alienation and estrangement from God because of the sin virus that we inherited from Adam. Again, Paul explains how we contracted this fatal disease because he wrote in another place, just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned the word hostile that's used here in this passage is a word which means hatred it means to be at enmity or to be enemies it is again in the active sense so it means to be hateful hostile uh to be an adversary of someone it is in the passive sense meaning it pertains to being subjected to hostility to be hated or to be regarded as an enemy so an enemy is one that is antagonistic to another especially seeking to injure overthrow or confound the opponent so again the strength of all of that definition all those words apply to who we were what we were and the attitude we have towards God so again remember that in the world we live in that there are many things that take place for example we'll just go back to our government and the way our government handles different situations that there is, there is this belief that all men have, whether they state it or not, if they're not a Christian, remember their view of the world is uh, there's no God in, in the world. Man is normally, man is it. Man is the supreme. Man can accomplish anything he wants. Man can accomplish everything. We don't need God. They don't really think that phrase out, but the way they act is we don't need God there is no supreme being, we can handle this, we can control this kind of an idea. And the, the goal in a sense, it's almost like science fiction. You know, there's always these science fiction movies about man trying to find a utopia, and usually we always mess it up and it ends up horrible. There's good reasons for that. But this, but this idea of a utopia, there are many in government who believe we can create that. They won't say that, oh yeah, we're gonna build a utopia. But what they do say is, we're gonna build a society that's what, free of disease? Free of crime free of discrimination now they're really whacked out in the way they're going about it but there are many who are on the side of those who want to be transgender and all these supposed equal rights for those individuals homosexuals etc and all the different ways they want to live in their mind what they're thinking and what they're and what they're believing is that's part of a utopia where everybody can be whatever they want and we all will be able to get along, and we'll all be the same. That you hear, you don't always hear about equal opportunities. It's uh, equity, so that everybody is the same. You know, so it's just another sure way of being communist. That's fine and dandy until you say that you're a Christian, then they hate you. So be <coughs> because communist. you don't believe any of that stuff, all right? We account for all yeah, the differences. No well, of course not. No, no, there's none of that. No. So, but again, what's behind all of these things they're doing, these laws they're enacting, there is this belief that man can create that. But the only way to do that is to continue to find ways to be much more, really, the word we would use is totalitarian, is to, is to impose the will of the government on the people because the government, <coughs> whatever way you want to look at it, knows best. Uh, and so that's what man is doing. So, so a lot of the things that are going on in government, it's, it's, not, you know, it's not a conspiracy theory, it's just that the world views the same. Man is in natural rebellion against God, period. And so what we see going on in government, part of that is the expression of man's spiritual deadness and rebellion against God. And that's why that's going on. That's why, you know, they, as Christians, we talk about taking a step back and looking at why is this happening? Why are they doing this? Do they really believe that? Um, are they thinking about, remember, that what their, their foundation for thinking is very different than the Christian. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. and Yes, so yeah. Children also, were born, I mean, we we're born in sin. Yes. Therefore, they're enemies the of God. So yes. It comes to a point of when you can understand the gospel. Oh, as far as um, what happens to them if they die? When they, yeah. When they die, they're not responsible until they come yeah. to the ability. Uh, to the yeah, I would say they're not accountable. I wouldn't use the word responsible yet. But, well, so I do believe That all babies, when they die, go to heaven. Now, I don't have time to explain that because it'll take an hour. But I do believe that there's strong biblical precedence for that, which is actually woven into what the Bible teaches, I believe, about predestination. But if you don't believe in predestination, I don't think you can believe that all babies go to heaven. But we won't go there. But all babies go to heaven. So what Christians used to always say, and they still say this, they talk about the age of accountability. The problem with that is that's not in the Bible. There's no age accountability. Um, as far as when does, a, when does a child understand that they are a sinner separated from God? Well, at different kids, different ages. You know, I know with my kids, my oldest, he was four and he understood it as a four year old. He didn't understand it as a 40 year old, but he understood it because I remember talking to him about it and I asked him, I, you know, he wanted to sleep with me and, and Cindy one night and I said, why? and he said he was afraid I said why are you afraid and so what he said was he said that he knew that mom and dad were going to heaven and that he wasn't and so I said well do you know how someone goes to heaven and he says yes they they know they love Jesus so I said do you love Jesus and this is what he said which I thought was great he said yes but not like I'm supposed to all right, so he's understanding a lot of theology there in his own you know in his own way but he's understanding it um and so uh we spent some time talking I asked him if he wanted to uh believe in Jesus and he said no um and so then I said well then you need to sleep outside for the next week no <laughs> what I said was I just said okay and and so I said I said well so his name was Jeremy I said so Jeremy you and Daddy will talk about this more uh, in the coming days and weeks and months because daddy wants you to understand uh, more of what we're talking about. And he was fine with that. But before he turned five, he I am convinced he became a believer. Children, young children, can become believers. We just have to be careful. We don't impose that on them in the sense that I have spoken to children where the grand, has always been the grandmother, not all, well, yes, so far. The grandmother says, you need to baptize my grandbaby because they're saved and they start telling me all these things about them being saved and then I talk to the grandchild and they don't have a clue and so then I say well I, yeah, I remember one situation where I explained to the grandmother I said well I think we need to wait a little longer I don't think she has the understanding that you think she does she was upset she goes I need to see my grandchildren baptized before I die and you're denying me that and I say well i not really I said do you want me to baptize your young your your granddaughter helping her to believe that she's a believer when she's not well she didn't want to answer the question that's a trick question i said well not intended to be but anyway so then she threatened me and said that she was going to tell the deacons and i said oh by all means go ahead it wasn't here i was an interim at another church but anyway uh, so we have to so we need to be careful uh, with children but we, but we don't want to take a stance that A, young children can't become believers because they definitely can. At the same time, we don't want to say that just because they can say the word Jesus means they're saved. So it's not that either. And so you want to talk to them and you know all those kinds of things. But again, when it comes to all of that, so they are born sinners, they're already born condemned. Um, at the same time, uh, if they die, guaranteed as an infant, they die as a young child, and again, I don't know what the age is, but I know this, God has never made a wrong decision. God has never been unjust. He's never been unfair as far as he, how, as far as he defines fairness. Um, so I'm not worried about that. And I can tell the parents with confidence that these, if it's a young child, that they are with the Lord. And I, and I think that we can stand firm on that. It's, it's a question that bothers obviously those who have, like if a woman has a miscarriage, well, when someone has a child that dies very young, you know, that's a big, huge concern. Um, in fact, that's what led... Well, it's not one of the things, but oftentimes, early on in history, in church history, when the Catholic Church was baptizing babies, the infant, because it was very common for, for babies not to make it to their first birthday, um, people were really freaked out about their babies not being baptized because they teach that if they're not baptized, they're not going to heaven. Uh, and so... You know the church was making money off of that back the then catholic too church taught that. yes yeah yeah the catholic church did you had your nonconformists and others who are breaking away from that who did not teach that and did not believe that um but yeah so it's it's a it can become a very big issue so i am one of those that do believe that i can show from scripture that every single aborted child in the world is in heaven period um and i have no qualms it's not just because I want that to be true though I do want it to be true I do believe that we can draw that conclusion from scripture um, which again is important uh, for us to be able to stand on not just because of wishful thinking but anyway so yeah this universal we uh, sometimes we call the, the, the theological term is total depravity Uh, And that is that basically every single person who's ever been born is born in sin, born condemned, um, and is an individual who's already a sinner, and that's why they sin. You know, people can ask the question, do you sin because you're a sinner, or do you become a sinner when you sin? And that's not a trick question, but we sin because we're already sinners. And the natural explanation of that is, I've never heard of anyone intentionally having to teach their children to do wrong because they only do right. And I also believe, and I'm convinced, that uh, young children do disobey, even as young as one. I'm not being cruel. You know, I'm not saying you should start smacking them around, uh, but they can. And I also believe that even an infant, uh, three months old, I believe they, they can scream in anger. You know, if, if you've burped them, you fed them, dry diaper, all those things, and I know it's important for us to hold them, I'm all in favor of that, uh, but there are times when you put that baby down, uh, there's a difference between the scream of I'm hungry, the scream I'm wet, the scream of whatever, and there's also the scream I am really ticked. Body about what about him? You don't you remember what he said? Mm. Uh, uh, diaper and diaper. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we could say that. Yeah, don't don't get don't get him the t-shirt, but yeah, I would agree. Yeah, but that's true, and we know that to be true. That doesn't mean we hate them. You know, we're not being negative. We're just that's that's positive. And God makes no mistakes, so correct. And all souls belong to Him, and He's merciful mm-hmm. and lo- love.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So why should anyone worry about that or be concerned about that? Well, I because there's been teaching before that all babies don't go to heaven somebody told them that. Well, yeah, they and they use the Bible. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So going to say that your whole series on do babies go to heaven is on our website. Okay. Yeah, it did take me 7 weeks to do that. Right, <laughs> that 7 of them. Like yeah. <laughs> I was going into great detail. But anyway, all right. Um, let me go back to my uh, Okay. So again, verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So the word mind there um, refers to the understanding or the mind that is activated. It refers to the higher intellectual nature, especially on the ethical side. The word mind means thinking through something, meditating, reflecting. Again, the word mind refers to the intellect. It also refers to moral understanding or the way of thinking. So the word mind there is important. Again, it's talking about the totality of this individual. There's no gap there for this individual to escape responsibility uh, for, for their, their hostility towards God. Remember that, uh, uh, hopefully you remember this, but one of the things that I think is important in the discussion, in, our, in, in particular in Western cultures, when we talk about addictions, is and I think the world... Uh, When I say the world, I mean in the secular sense. Their definition of addiction is completely wrong, and they've missed everything when it comes to that. And, And there's a lot of problems with that. But what I know from Scripture is this no matter our situation, God always holds the individual responsible for what they do. Always. It doesn't matter if you come from a good background or a bad background. If you do wrong, who's responsible? You are. It doesn't mean others aren't responsible for their share. Okay, if you have bad parents and they treated you wrongly, God holds them responsible for that. But the wrong they did to you never made you do anything. It can be a very heavy influence. It can make you feel that, like that's all you know. But human beings created in an image of God, even though that image is marred by sin, have an amazing ability to think contrary to whatever our influences are. There's the, the, the idea that people do certain things because they cannot help themselves. That's not in the Bible. And I do believe the Bible addresses that issue. And therefore, the Bible holds us responsible. There's nothing in the Bible that even hints that there's any class of people or kind of individual who is never responsible for what they do. Even an individual who has some form of mental retardation. Obviously, we would say there are certain things they, are, they don't know. All right, We understand that. But what they do know, they still sin. All right? You take individual who's, who uh, may, may only be able to advance to a second grade level, but do second graders sin? Absolutely. They rebel against mom and dad. What's one of the first words your children learn besides mom and dad? No. <laughs> and they know what it means. <laughs> All right, and it's not a term of endearment. Um, you know, it's, a, it is an, it's a word of rebellion. Um, if you don't believe me, raise some children. <laughs> All right? It happens. But the thing is, is that, that so with that, uh, we're held responsible, no matter who we are. It's, it's, it's not a fun thing, and the world really hates that, even though they're very inconsistent in what they do believe. Um, but Christians have a good handle on that, at least they should have a good handle on that, and a good understanding. And none of that understanding eliminates our ability to show compassion and kindness to individuals. When we raise our children, we don't say, well, I'm just raising a bunch of little devils. Right? We still treat them the right way, but we know we have a responsibility to train them correctly because they have a natural bent to do what? To do wrong. Okay, Remember, it's not this idea that they're born with a blank slate. You know That used to be kind of popular in psychology, and sometimes it still is. That's not the case. They're not born with a blank slate, um, and then you can mold them into whatever you want. We can have great influence over them, but they're born with a natural tendency to do wrong, to seek wrong. Uh, And we need to know that's why we not only try to teach them the right thing, we don't just try to give them good moral instruction. Hopefully, we use the Word of God. The Word of God is the power of God. And we also pray for them and then pray that God would give us wisdom as well as patience and energy uh, to raise them correctly. Yes? And we remember what we were. Yes. Yep, we all come from the same place. Um, Let me read this. I forget the pastor who said this, but it doesn't matter. I'll read it anyway. It's really good. It says, it is a tragedy to see men created in the image of God, use their minds actively against God. There was a time when all of us who are now Christians were alienated from God. We did not have any use for God. We did not take him into our reckoning. We did not consider him important. We started and ended each day without a thought of him. We went about our own plans, lived for ourselves, did what we felt like doing, never giving a thought to God. Or if we did think of him, we regarded him merely as a remote being on the horizon of life, but we never expected anything from him because we cut him out of our thinking. Even though he was sustaining our very life, we ended up, as Paul describes, enemies in our minds, hostile towards God. We did not want anything to do with him. Do you remember how that felt? We avoided God. We thought he would interfere with our plans or that he was a cosmic killjoy out to make us live uneventful and unhappy lives. We were not open to him in any degree whatsoever. We were enemies of God, and as a result, we expressed that enmity in evil deeds. So we were in there, and we will then continue on uh, with the last few words of verse 21 and then get into verse 22. Um, But again, as we work our way through this, I trust that it's, at least helps to clarify our thinking in a lot of different areas and and our thinking can be more in line with scripture and with the gospel and understanding what God's doing and how God deals with us how we are to think about ourselves others and sin and begin to see a consistency in all of these things uh, that gives us a a better understanding not only an understanding that's just okay now I know that uh, but then enables us to be able to deal with those things whether it's in our life the lives of others uh, or what have you let's pray Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, kindness, and love. We thank you, Father, again for your word. We thank you, Father, for how Paul has communicated these truths to us. We pray, Lord, you would help us to uh, take these things to heart, that you will enable us, Father, to think through them, uh, to grapple with them. We pray, Lord, that our thinking will be greatly influenced by the truth of your word, and that, Father, will have a greater clarity in our thinking and in our understanding, that we may make better decisions, and that, Father, we may, again, grow in our, uh, and, and deepen in our appreciation of who you are and all that you've done. Again, Father, we do thank you for the life you've given us. We thank you, Father, for the many gifts you've blessed us with. Keep us safe as we go home. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.